Big Chillians. Uh, this week it's it's me doing the introduction instead of Frank, and unfortunately we can't be joined by uh, Samuel Jones either. But we we do have the pleasure of being joined by Derek Ray, who is currently the ESPN's lead lead Bundesliga commentator, as well as a contributor to ESPN FC and a columnist for ESPN.com, and whose voice may be most familiar to many of our listeners or viewers from his work with the FIFA video game series. So Derek, thank you very much for, for taking the time to speak with us. Oh, thank you. Thanks very much for the invitation. It's great to be on with you both. And Frank, hello to you as well. Sorry that I had to steal yeah. your thunder a little bit and do the introduction this time. No, that's fine. It's it's uh, I, not, not too concerned. I'm actually more concerned for Derek that he has such an amazing career and you just say that people are going to know him from FIFA and not from the 20 plus years of announcing he's done throughout his career. <laughs> no, I, mean, I, I wouldn't worry about that, honestly, because um, it, it's actually true. I think for younger people who obviously play video games a lot, then that is probably who I am to a lot of younger people, not so much the, the guy who's been commentating since 1986 professionally, but, <laughs> but, but the voice they hear on, on FIFA. So yeah, it's all fine. <laughs> that, that might actually be, I mean, I think we've got quite a few topics to cover, but I actually, let's get started because one of the most interesting things sort of read about you in, in preparing for this was the way you sort of got your break into commentary, which I think mm. is probably one of the more unusual yeah. stories if you could just tell our, our listeners a little bit sort of how it came about and how you actually finally got the chance to, to sort of commentate on a match well I was very lucky I have to say that I was extremely fortunate at the age of 19 to get my big break and I always say to young aspiring broadcasters you do need to be lucky you need to get that big break somewhere and somebody has got to want to give you that break so how do you put yourself in the position to get the big break because it's not just going to happen you know to a random person on the street it, it's going to be because you have some sort of body of work now from a very young age and i mean from the age of seven in aberdeen where i'm from northeast of scotland i had been very much into putting my voice on tape and in 1974 when i was seven we purchased our very first stereo cassette recorder and young people always sort of you know, furrow their brow and, and go, what, what on earth is a stereo cassette recorder? <laughs> Sounds like something from a different age. Well, of course it was, but it was the first time that in our household, we had had the chance to record ourselves. And it was quite a concept to a, a seven-year-old playing around with this device. And this was during the World Cup in 1974 in West Germany. And I've still got the tapes of me basically impersonating the commentators and the pundits that I heard on BBC and ITV at the time. But from that point on, I sort of then gravitated to a portable version of the same thing. And I would carry it around, you know, in the park, on the street, at school. And I would just commentate on games. You know, there'd be these impromptu games happening and I would just commentate on them just, you know, for, for a laugh, really. But I realized I really enjoyed doing this. And when I was around um, 12, 11, 12, I started taking the tape machine to Pataudry Stadium, the home of my local club, Aberdeen, initially for reserve team games, but then plucked up the courage to do it for first team matches, you know, with the crowd all around me and everything. And of course, I'd get the strangest looks you could imagine, you know, people saying, you know, who is, who is that strange laddie who's talking to himself into a, uh, into, a tape, into a tape recorder the whole game? That's a bit strange, isn't it? That's a bit odd. Um, but I kept these tapes 
And my great hero was a guy called David Francie, who was the voice of Scottish football on radio at the time, on BBC Radio in Scotland, and had a very distinctive delivery. You know, you definitely couldn't miss David Francie. You know, similar to other sports around the world, people have voices who they associate with particular teams or particular eras in, in sports that they follow. And so on a whim one day, I said, I'm going to write to David Francie and I'm going to send him a tape of my work. And of course, my voice at that point hadn't broken, um, but I was still, I was commentating and um, thought, well, I'll probably never hear back from him. Maybe it won't even reach him, but I'll try. Lo and behold, a few weeks later, this beautiful handcrafted letter came in from Newton Mearns in Glasgow, uh, David Francie was the person who had responded to me that day. And um, he was very encouraging, said he enjoyed listening to my tape, gave me some tricks of the trades, uh, things that I could be doing to, to improve. And he said, just keep in touch. So we sort of did over a number of years. And one of his suggestions had been to go and volunteer for hospital radio, which is something that exists in the UK to this day. And it's essentially a service for patients in hospital. You know, imagine if you're in hospital, you might want a, a radio service that's dedicated to, to your situation and your environment. And in those days, there wasn't really commercial radio in Aberdeen, where I was from, didn't really exist. So I... Um, basically signed up to do that and it meant commentating on games this time for a hospital audience from Pataudry. So what I'm really getting at is all the while I was having this practical experience of being a commentator on an amateur basis so that when the time came when I was 19 I was at university in Aberdeen and I sent a tape again to David Francie this time and it tells you everything about the man instead of just writing back to me and he didn't tell me about this. He just gave it to his bosses at the BBC. He said, have a listen to this. So they had a listen to it. And then a couple of weeks later, I got a letter from his boss at the BBC saying, we love what's on this tape. Could you come down to Glasgow sometime and have a chat about it? So I did. And um, to cut a long story short, I was given my big chance in April 1986 at the age of 19. And it was because the aforementioned Mr. Francie had picked up a, a knee injury and he couldn't do the game he was scheduled to do. So it was Kilmarnock against Dumbarton, which was the, the live game. So I went down to Glasgow. Um, was I nervous? I, I, I don't know. I suppose I was, but I don't remember being especially nervous. And maybe it was partially because I'd been doing it on an amateur basis for a while. So again, what I'm saying is it wasn't as though I was just sort of thrown in to do a commentary, having never you know, been behind the microphone before. I'd actually been doing it for quite some time, you know, obviously not with the pressure of, of a live professional broadcast, but with the same discipline. So I did the game. I thought it went well. Um, got back to Aberdeen, uh, taking the train, uh, and there was a message when I got back saying, could you call Charles Runsey at the BBC? So I called Charles Runsey at the BBC, and he said, just to go over everything, we're thrilled, great today, really enjoyed it, um, but we want to know, are you ready for assignment number two? I said, oh, is there a second assignment? I said, I said what's, the, what's the second assignment? He said, well, he said, um, uh, you know, he said, listen to this. He goes, England against Scotland is coming up uh, this midweek. As you know, we would like you to go to Wembley and be our commentator for that game. And that was purely, again, because they knew that, that David wasn't going to make it and they needed a replacement. And... So, you know, I had no idea that was part of the plan. That was my second game on air. I'd never been to Wembley. I'd never covered the oldest international fixture that there is. But here I was being given this chance for my second game. So it's a long-winded answer. 
but I think it maybe is necessary to give you the kind of the context behind how I got my break. And, um, you know, touch wood, I, I've been doing that job since 1986, and, and I still love it just as much as ever. No, I mean, it's a, it's a really fascinating story. And I guess it is good to balance the idea that it was a mixture of luck and preparation. And it wasn't just that, because I guess there's, you could have kind of read the story as <laughs> if, well, the, the commentator was injured and they plucked someone from the, cl- the, the sort of crowd and then, yeah. you know, never looked back from there. So no, it's, it's, it's good to see that it, was, it wasn't just sort of pure chance. That but but, but what I, what, and that's absolutely right. What I would say though is, you know, there are so many talented people in all walks of life who don't get that chance, you know, and sometimes it just comes down to the circumstances. I remember the, the big boss at BBC Scotland doing an interview about my story uh, that month and he said, yeah, it's a little bit like the, um, you know, in a musical, it's a bit like the, you know, the lead voice in the musical has to pull out and you, you know, take somebody from the chorus line and they then become the, the lead voice because the difference with Derek is that he wasn't even close to the chorus line a week ago, you know? <laughs> so, um, so yeah, I, it's not lost on me how lucky I was to get that big break. But uh, I've always said, and I say this to young broadcasters, you have to be ready to walk through that door when that big break comes because uh, you never know when it's going to arrive. Yeah, no, that's obviously good advice. It's, it's one of those things we've always tried to speak whenever we've interviewed people to try and see what kind of career advice they could give to people trying to, to break into their industry. So I think yeah. that is obviously that is good little bit of inspiration from people and also just a encouragement to be perseverant. Um, I guess the interesting thing also from your career, you've, you've, you've also then had quite an unusual career path in the sense that you've worked with a number of different broadcasters and covered a number of different leagues and sort of moved around quite a bit. Um, how did you decide sort of how did you end up moving so for example you moved to the U.S. my understanding is specifically for the 1994 FIFA World Cup so how did you make that decision to sort of go there was it was it tactical in the sense that you thought that the, the sort of sport was going to explode in the United States or was it was that kind of more by chance it was sort of more by chance. I mean, what I will say is if I try to analyze my personality, I'm a little bit restless at times. I think I'm the sort of person, and I see this with quite a lot of people in creative professions. Um, I think I get to the point where once I've done a project for a few years, once I've been really immersed in it and, and put my heart and soul into it, I sort of look for something else to, to focus my energies on. And Again, I think being young at the time, I think when you're young, you are especially restless. And you know, remember, I joined the BBC at 19. I was there for five years. I got to travel to 19 different countries to broadcast the game that I love, to do what I love. And a lot of people thought I was crazy when I said, you know what, I think it's time to try something else. And they said, but you've got the greatest job in the world. Why would you want to swap that for anything? And I think in my mind, I just thought, well, you know, I, I've done this and maybe I'll come back to it again, but I'm, I'm ready for whatever the next chapter is. And I'd been intrigued by the USA for a while. Um, I had started to, to read a lot more about the US. I'd first traveled to, to the US in the late 80s and just found that it was everything that I actually hadn't imagined that it was. When I was younger, I was very Eurocentric and, and I was sort of obsessed with every European country um, I'm a fluent German speaker. You know, Germany was the country I sort of looked to as 
as the one that, that you know, possibly I would end up living in long term. But the US had come later. And on my trips to the US, when I had free time, I, I had just found that it was a different sort of place with its own spirit. And of course, it wasn't lost on me that the World Cup was coming to the USA in 1994. Now, in 1990, at the World Cup in Italy, I had made contact with a few of the people who were to be running the World Cup in 1994. So I gave up this job with the BBC. I, I traveled to Boston, which was the city that had spoken to me most of the places that I had visited in the USA. Uh, I can't really tell you why other than it just felt a little bit like home when I first arrived in Boston. And I decided I was going to set up shop in Boston as a freelance journalist, but I did something else that, again, a lot of people thought, you're not doing this, but it actually was, was a very good decision. I enrolled at a local college in Boston studying broadcasting. And people said, hang on, but you, you've spent five years with the BBC. Um, you know, I was lucky enough to win an award, the, the British Sports Broadcaster of the Year Award in 1987 when I was at the BBC. They said, people who win awards like that don't go to a, a sort of a starter college to learn broadcasting. And I said, well, first of all, I said, I'm not as arrogant uh, as to think that I, I can never learn. And secondly, I'm going to a new culture. So I actually want to understand this culture more. And I thought, where better to do that than to sort of go to shop floor level, if you like, and, and understand the broadcasting culture in the USA. I'm really glad I did, you know, because it is a different broadcasting culture. And I think I got to understand the USA a lot better through that time, um, just a few months, but getting to know, you know, even little things like what the, the FCC is and, um, you know, what the rules are around broadcasting and what the styles are around broadcasting in the USA. But um, concurrent with that, I was also making contacts. And that was really the point of coming to Boston was to, to make contacts. And I did so, again, um, on a more intimate basis with the people who were running the World Cup in Boston part of the, the bigger organizing committee, um, but the, the Boston venue. And the long and the short of it is that I was offered a job to actually move away from full-time broadcasting for a while. But again, it was still sort of uh, broadcasting, certainly communications. Um, I, I, so the job was press officer for the, the World Cup in the Boston venue as part of the bigger organizing committee. And my goodness, what a, what a job that was uh, and, and what a great time that was. And I look back so fondly. Um, the people I worked with were terrific. It was very much a kind of a, um, a crew with a global bent, if you like, which you would probably think makes sense with, with people who are working in, in international soccer, international football. And um, again, I got to make terrific contacts, even at sort of team and association level. You know, when you're a broadcaster or a journalist, you're covering events, you have a sort of a distant relationship with some of the, the actors in the drama, the players and the coaches. But when you're working for the organizing committee, you have access to the inner sanctum. You know, you are sort of part of the inner sanctum. So I got to live that for two years. I got to drive coaches of various teams around the Boston area as they looked for training sites. And you get to know people on a different basis during that. So that was really where it started. I didn't know where that was going to end. I just knew I wanted a new experience uh, in the USA. I wanted to live it. I wanted to see if I liked it, you know, because there were no guarantees. And 
Um, yeah, there were moments actually early on when I moved to Boston where I thought, no, I don't know. I, I don't know if this is for me. You know, I, I miss a little bit what I was doing back home. But I thought, no, stay the course. St stay this whole course because you, you've chosen this for a reason. And you'll only know at the end of the course if it is for you. So um, I did that obviously through the World Cup in 94. And here's the funny thing. Um, about three months before that World Cup, I got a call from one of the senior producers at ESPN uh, because I'd actually sent them a tape of my work a couple of years prior. And the call basically was, oh yeah, we've got this tape of your work. We'd really love it if you would do a few of our World Cup games for us on ESPN. And of course I had to say, oh, I would love to, but of course I can't because I'm the press officer here in, in Boston and I can't give up this job, you know, so close to the tournament. I don't want to give up the job. I put so much into it, but that was a real um, hammer blow, if you like. But, but it, there's a lesson there too, because as a broadcaster, especially as a freelance broadcaster, which I've been for a big chunk of my career, there are times where you simply can't be in two places at once and you have to make decisions about what you want to do and, and you know, what you should do based on where you are at that point in your life. Um, but fortunately, the ESPN connection was to be revisited uh, after the World Cup. And they came back and said, we're starting an international service. Uh, we've actually just started it. We'd love you to be part of that as a commentator. We've got rights to um, leagues all around the world, Brazil, the Netherlands, the Champions League coming up. And um, that was to sort of be a big part of my broadcasting identity in the US after 1994. But I'll certainly never forget the fabulous experience of working uh, as part of the organizing committee in, in 94 at the World Cup. Oh, that's, I mean, that's very interesting. Again, very interesting. You touched on a point there. You talked about enrolling in, in broadcasting school in the U.S. and sort of having to learn about the different culture and stuff. And I know that since starting, since working for ESPN and, and you've worked, you've gone back to the U.K. to work for BT Sport and, and some other roles subsequently. How, do you find that you have to change your style and your cadence depending on whether you're broadcasting for a sort of an American audience or a British audience? Or do you now feel just comfortable that you sort of, you are who you are and the style is the same no matter what? Um, I, I would say at first I, I did. I, in the 90s, I did. I made a conscious effort to, to change um, quite a few things because, quite frankly, it was put to me by um, a producer early on um, that they didn't want the British sound. That, that was not going to be welcome in the USA. It's funny how that, that has sort of come full circle. That's changed a lot uh, in the modern era. But in the 90s, um, again, think about, the, think about the context. We were at a time where... You know, the U.S. maybe wasn't as open to the world back then. Um, the game was seen as this sort of foreign game and they wanted to Americanize it. You know, that was something that was crystal clear. So I think I, I did that a lot more in the early days. But I remember hitting a, a point um, towards the end of the 90s where I thought this is not the way to do it because um, I, I, I'm compromising who I really am here, you know. And so nowadays, I don't really give it much thought. I think maybe subconsciously I do. You know, if I'm talking just to a U.S. audience, then, you know, my references might um, occasionally be more American um, in terms of if there's an American connection with the game, I might make that American connection. But I think ultimately, as a commentator, we shouldn't overthink that too much. You know, I think... Um, 
uh, calling a, a sport is calling a sport and and we do it um, you know using the same techniques irrespective of whether we're talking to the US or the UK of course a lot of my work is for what we call international feeds world feeds and they are designed to be feeds that are applicable to the whole world so I think that's quite a good discipline because you learn when you do a world feed you learn to try to talk to as wide an audience as possible at, at one time but to go back to your, your question, yeah, I, I think in the early days, like a lot of people who were trying to make their way in the USA, um, that is what we were being fed was that, um, yeah, you know, tone down the, 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 the Scottishness or the Britishness, um, uh, if you can. But um, thankfully, I sort of made, a, made an executive decision to, um, to, to not do that. And I, I think it has served me well. Yeah, that's great. And, and then so kind of going with that, you said that, you know, back then the U.S. kind of had that perception of the rest of the world. Um, and what about the perception of, of football in the United States? Do you think that's changed a lot from when you started in the 90s to today? Uh, about like, you know, p- people in the U.S., how they think uh, football is played and, and how much I think like love they now have for the game as opposed to in the 90s. Do you think that's changed a lot? Oh, yeah, massively. Um, when I think back to the challenges we had in 1994, ahead of the 1994 World Cup, we were trying to basically educate a whole you know, mass of, of people as to what this was. And that really started, from my point of view, with local media in Boston. And some of the conversations I had with uh, journalists, not so much journalists, but more editors and decision makers at local TV stations, um, you know, they were not the easiest because there was a real hostility. I would use that word. There was hostility to it because this was sort of something they didn't really like the idea of. It's like, what is this? You know, who, who are these? You know, who's this guy who's coming in from another country trying to tell us about sports? You know, we, we, we know all about sports here. We know about the Red Sox and we know about the Patriots and we know about the Bruins and the Celtics and all that kind of stuff. So you were dealing with that kind of cultural conundrum, if you like. And, um, you know, think about where we are now, where the sport is much more entrenched, not obviously to the extent that the traditional American sports are, but it's just a totally different landscape. And I mean, back then, one of the things we had to face all the time was I'd pick up the Boston Globe and there was a certain columnist. I won't name him um, because I don't want to give him the oxygen of publicity. He's still around. But there was a columnist who who seemed to take great pleasure in just writing a hit piece almost every two weeks on on how terrible the sport was, you know, about how awful it was and how boring it was and how how the fact it was an international sport, you know, made it somehow um, irrelevant to people in Boston. I mean, it it sort of it bordered on... I would say it bordered on racist a lot of what was was written back then. Um, in fact, there, there were some pieces that were outright racist. Um, so, so that's what we were dealing with. We were dealing with a, a lot of ignorance and a, a lot of hostility. But I also realized that there were a lot of people out there who were very open to it and liked the differences and liked the fact that this was new and their kids played it. And, you know, maybe they had a friend from Portugal who had told them how great it was and they wanted to experience it. Uh, maybe they had been to England or Germany once and the, or Italy and, and had got a taste of it and had thought, wow, this is really, this is really something cool that's coming to, to, um, to our area. But nowadays, as I say, you know, it, it keeps with each sort of passing um, big tournaments, I think it gets bigger and bigger in American terms. And so I think the World Cup obviously has had an impact there, especially, I would say, 
from around 2006 on. You know, I think it really has grown and grown. And of course, you have more coverage of it on uh, TV or nowadays on streaming as well. It's available to more people. So I think it just stands to reason that on all levels now, the, the generation of today in the USA is far more educated uh, about the sport and, and far more open to it. Back then, we did have quite a few hurdles we had to clear. And when you're talking about a kind of a more educated audience, has that also changed the way that you broadcast in a way that now maybe you don't feel as if you're having to introduce the sport to, to viewers, but you're actually talking to people who, who have a high level of understanding and maybe a deep knowledge about the league and the sport? Yeah, I mean, I think that is true. Um, I'm not sure that I ever really um, made it sort of my mission to explain um, in sort of, you know, blatant terms. Um, what I would say is that I, I've always been a fan of the idea that intelligent commentary in of itself is explanatory, you know, so that I've never really liked the idea of, of, and I know some commentators did this in the 90s in the US, I would hear them, you know, they would explain uh, you know, what a free kick was or explain what a corner was. I've, I've always sort of said, if, if you just commentate, then people will pick it up. I, and the reason why I, I felt that way was I took an interest in American football and the NFL in the late 80s. But I didn't read a book or I didn't need a commentator to tell me, um, you know, yeah, well, it's uh, it's it's first down. And that means they've got to go 10 yards. So they've got three downs to, to get, you know, I, I just basically listened to the coverage on, you know, that was available through CBS, NBC, ABC, et cetera, at the time. And I picked it up and I thought, well, if I can pick that up, um, you know, it's quite a, a a different sport in comparison with the ones that I grew up with. If I can pick that up just by listening to the commentators, then surely, you know, the American equivalent, somebody who's not been exposed to, to my sport, just by listening, if I explain it properly without over explaining it, then they'll get it. And I think that's where we are with the sport in the US now. I, I don't think people would want us to, to go over the top with that. And as a result, I, I really don't think there is any difference in the commentary styles nowadays. I think American commentators as a rule, um, at least commentators who've grown up in the American culture, they tend to talk a little bit more, I would say, than, than European commentators. There's sort of a, um, an idea that you have to engage your audience by talking. I think in Europe, we feel a bit more, especially when you have crowds, obviously we don't have crowds at the moment in a pandemic, I think we feel a bit more that it's okay to let things sort of drift for 15, 20 seconds at a time and just let the crowd do the talking and then come back in. Um, so there are differences that way. Also, when we talk about that kind of thing, American commentators have a, a technique they use where they like to say nothing over a goal. They like to talk quite a lot in the run of play, but then if there's a goal or a big moment, they say nothing for 30 or 40 seconds. Again, that's not really a European technique. You know, there are differences. There are always going to be differences in how people view the job. But I think um, uh, fundamentally, if, if your commentary is intelligent and on point, um, people will get it without you having to, to over-egg the pudding, so to speak. Yeah, Look, that makes sense. I think you probably touched on a few just cultural differences that extend yeah. beyond just commentary there in Americans and British people. Um, I was going to say, living in both the States and in, and in Europe, what you said yeah. now just seems so blatantly obvious, like listening to the both different commentaries and it's exactly how you describe it. It's so funny. <laughs> yeah. But I mean, I think it's just, again, it's cultural, isn't it? And it's what you grow yeah. up with and it's what you think is and you feel is right. And a lot of, you know, commentary is feel, um, you know, yes, it's technique, but it's, it's feeling 
the moment and we all feel the moment in a different way. I mean, if you were to listen to, you know, commentators from Argentina or Brazil, they feel the moment by going really loud and, and doing their exaggerated goal shout, you know, in, in, in my culture, that wouldn't be as welcome. People would think that was, <laughs> that was overdoing it. Um, uh, obviously in the U S people feel that way too, because they like, or at least producers like the, the, um, the silence from the commentator and just shots of the crowd and, and people getting excited. As I say, I, I tend to like to find, if I can, a memorable line, um, you know, that, that occurs to me at the time to sum up the moment uh, and then say not much apart from that. So, yeah, we, we all do it differently. But but I think our, our upbringing is, is at the heart of why we perhaps do it differently in each country. You talk there about trying to have a memorable line to sum up the moment. Do you ever find yourself trying to prepare sort of possible lines you know, if you go into a match thinking this is, this might be the storyline, you, ne- you never sort of prepare anything in advance? No, not like that. Um, yeah, I, and, and I don't know many commentators who actually do it that way. I think what you do is you prepare for a game. And in the process of preparing for a game, little themes come into your head, sometimes imperceptibly. Sometimes you don't even know that the theme is in your head. But, you're, you know, remember, you're working sometimes four or five days ahead of the game nonstop just on that game. So things are, are sticking in your brain. And I find that is the best way. Um, the, the best lines are, are ones that are, you know, are completely unscripted. They just come to you in the moment. But because there is so much um, info in your brain at that particular moment, and, and you undoubtedly are thinking about what a player might do in a game, that's something that you res- researched earlier in the week is going to stick. But no, I, I stopped short of that because I think if you... If you over-prepare that, then it is going to sound over-prepared. You know, it's going to sound out of context. And, um, you know, I mean, I, there are times when you, do, when you sort of do it without even knowing that you've done it. I remember uh, a game in Scotland a few years ago, which was a really big game between Hearts and Hibs. And Hearts, two Edinburgh clubs, I should explain for people who don't know, um, <clears throat> Hearts were about to get relegated. And it looked as though they were going to be relegated by Hibs at Hearts own ground, which would have been just the ultimate ignominy. <clears throat> and I remember at halftime saying to Gary McAllister, my co-commentator, um, uh, saying, you know, Hearts are really, Hearts, Hearts are really playing well here. And, and it's almost as though they're saying, you know, not, not today, not, not here. And I said it at halftime off air. And then Hearts basically settled the issue near the end of the game with a, a goal from a guy called Billy King. And um, the, the scenes were just, you know, incredible, magical. Uh, you, you didn't have to be a Hearts fan. You could look at the scenes now and you'd think, wow, that is real football emotion. This was because a team wasn't avoiding relegation, but avoiding relegation that day um, at the hands of their great rivals. You know, just imagine how much that would hurt. And, and the line that I used on the air was, and it was not something I'd written down or prepared, apart from obviously in my mind, I'd prepared it with my halftime chat with my co-com Gary, um, was... Um, not on this patch of Edinburgh land, not in a derby, no relegation today. And I said it more forcefully than I've just said it to you now. But um, Hearts fans have told me they have that on their ringtone. Some of them have that on their ringtone. You know, they, they, when they contact me, they sometimes preface it with that line because it means an awful lot to them. You know, that kind of thing means a lot to a football fan. And again, it was one that I just... I didn't think about it because I didn't know how the game was going to go, but I had said it to Gary at halftime and obviously it planted a seed in my mind. And that's usually where the best lines come from. That's interesting. And I guess from a commentator's perspective, right? Sometimes your career can be a bit defined, not 
mm. by a, a memorable line. So, you know, you have the kind of Martin Tyler's Aguero um, City QPR moment. If you look back on your career so far, and, and maybe there will be bigger moments to come and, and more defining lines, is, is, it, is that moment the one that sticks out to you the most? Or is there another sort of individual match moment and something that you've said that you think? Um, it's a funny one because I don't, I don't think too much about that. I, I guess I probably maybe only think about it in the context of really big games that have had dramatic endings. And, you know, sometimes, to be honest, simple is best. That's the one thing that we, I think, as commentators forget. I think sometimes we think we have to be more intricate than is absolutely necessary. Some of the best lines are, are simple lines. And, um, I mean, one of the biggest games, in fact, I would probably say the biggest story that I've ever covered in the context of a big final um, would have been 2005 in Istanbul when Liverpool came back from 3-0 down to um, to take Milan, then for me the best team in Europe, um, to penalties and Liverpool won it on penalties. And um, I hadn't watched that back for a long time uh, because all the years I've been working in the UK, I'd, I'd had the, the DVD in my ca- my cabinet here in, in Boston. And um, Somebody wanted me to, to listen back to it for a project they were doing, so I did. And I listened back to, to the very end of it. And um, if you remember, so it was Shevchenko who was denied by Jerzy Dudek, the Liverpool goalkeeper, who, who was the hero in the penalty shootout. And, and the line was, was simple, but I remember listening back thinking that that actually fits. I'm, I'm so happy to hear that back because I haven't heard it for a long time. And sometimes with the passage of time, things don't, suit your ears as much as you think, oh, I could have said that better. But it was fairly simple. It was, it was, um, you know, I think I said Shevchenko. I said, saved by Dudek. And I said, against all odds, against, no, against all the odds, against all expectations. And then there was surprise in my voice. Liverpool are the champions of Europe. You know, and I sort of said it with almost a kind of a, you know, can you believe that this has actually happened? And um, so that kind of, kind of line I, I, I'm always happy with because, it wasn't overdone. It wasn't contrived. It was just reacting to, to what I saw in front of me. Similarly, um, uh, my favorite derby in the world is the, the Borussia Dortmund Schalke derby in Germany. And I've been lucky enough to be on site for quite a few of them. And one of the greatest of all time was fairly recently in November 2017. And I was there with Stefan Freund doing it. And it was 4-0 to Dortmund at halftime. And, you know, we're thinking, my goodness, this is going to be, you know, six or seven nil. But Schalke started eating into the lead in the second half. They got to 4-1, 4-2, 4-3 near the end of the game. We're thinking, could this happen? Well, it did happen deep in stoppage time. They made it 4-4. And, um, you know, so Naldo, who scored the, the goal, the Brazilian, you know, and I remember to this day, you can see him jumping into the heavens, heading it home. And, and all I said was, Naldo. And then I said, um, I said, this is why they call it the mother of all derbies. It's all you need, you know? And, um, and I hadn't prepared it. It just, you know, obviously that is what we could, that it just referred to as die Mutter aller derbies in, in German, the mother of all derbies. So um, sometimes when you hear a, a clip uh, extolling the virtues of that derby, you'll hear, my voice with that line. <laughs> this is why they call it the mother of all derbies. Um, so, yeah, I, I think it, you go with the feel, you go with the emotion, and hopefully, as a commentator, you have enough words in your head um, to to make it sing and to make it fit. I mean, you've already mentioned the fact that you're fluent in German, and obviously, your pronunciation of of certain words there kind of shows that. 
that's another topic I kind of wanted to ask you about. One, I suppose, how did you become fluent? Sort of, was that because you wanted to cover the Bundesliga and was that sort of the decision or was just an interest in German culture? And then secondly, in terms of commentating on a number of different leagues and from players all over the world, in terms of getting the accent right and pronouncing it, and do you change that? Because do you think in your mind, while I'm broadcasting to an international audience, should I not sort of say this correctly in a sort of German accent? Or so what's that process like? Well, the first question, um, I had an interest in German from a very young age. And I mentioned earlier, the 74 World Cup in West Germany was um, a pretty special time for, for, for me as a young lad in Aberdeen. And I remember just being obsessed with Germany. And of course, you had West and East Germany both competing in that World Cup. And I remember just pestering my parents, you know, morning, noon and night with questions about Germany. And they finally had to get an encyclopedia to, to help me because in those days, of course, we didn't have Internet. You know, it was a different era. Uh, but I was really fascinated with with everything about Germany. Um, a couple of years later, so around nine uh, in primary school in Scotland, that's when we begin to learn languages. And it's potluck. You're either, well, at least in those days it was, you're either in the French class or in the German class. Luckily, I was in the German class. Um, as it turned out, I could have switched. If I'd been in the French class, I could have made a special request to move to the German class. But I was in the German class anyway, which was brilliant. And I realized for whatever reason that I had an ability to, to learn German. It, it, I'm not going to say it came easily to me, but I enjoyed it. I really liked it. And I found that I picked it up quickly and I liked the kind of the, the taxing aspect of it because it is arguably the most difficult European language to learn. I didn't know that at the time, but it is very taxing and challenging if you want to get things like grammatical structure correct. Um, you could learn a more basic version of German, but you know, I, I didn't want to do that. I wanted to, to, to know everything with, you know, the, um, um, with the exact nature of the grammar um, in my head. And the other thing that sort of happened around that time was I, I began to play around with radio. And because of my location, our family's location on the North Sea coast in Aberdeen, I realized that we had access to uh, radio stations from around Europe. Because if you can picture or have a look on the map, you can see, you know, Aberdeen just across the water from Denmark, uh, Norway, um, the Netherlands, Germany, just further down the North Sea. And radio signals travel quite a long distance, especially at night uh, when you have just the flat sea, basically, as the, um, the, the sort of the transmission field. And so I began to realize that I could listen to German radio uh, every day. And that became my sort of uh, background a lot of the time. I would, you know, sit and do my, my German work and I'd have German radio on. And a lot of it was music, but chat, news, sports. And then I realized that I could listen to the Bundesliga, that the, the Bundesliga conference, as they called it, was on there. So, you know, somebody who was studying German, I thought, this is great, you know, and somebody who was a football fanatic, I began to listen to this. And, yeah, of course, my friends thought I was nuts. They were saying, what are you, what are you doing sitting listening to a foreign language and listening to people, you know, they would come to the house and go, how, how can you understand any of that? And I'd say, well, I'm learning German, you know. And, um, of course, this helped my, my German, no, no doubt about it, because I, I went the extra mile. And that, again, that's what I say to young people. If you have a passion for something, go the extra mile. You know, don't just, you know, follow the crowd. Do your own thing and, and um, you know, really try to, to make yourself excellent at something rather than just sort of good. If you have that passion, you know, if it's something you really like, then, then try and be great at it. Um, 
so this has stayed with me and it's really only in the in the latter part of of my career that I've been able to use German to the extent that I do now. I mean, in the early days, it was useful when I was at the BBC. And again, this was pre-internet and at a time when not everybody spoke English. I was always charged with calling FIFA and UEFA because they said, you'll be able to talk to them in their language and you'll get information that we might not get in English, you know, that they might be a bit more guarded. And that was definitely the way, I, the way I operated. And the same with the World Cup in 94. That was one of the, the reasons why I got hired for that job was that I had a languages background. And they said, we, we want that. You know, we, we want the fact that, um, that, that you bring this to the table. But obviously, in more recent years, with my more intimate connection with the Bundesliga and being in Germany a lot more, um, then it has undoubtedly paid dividends. Now, the second part of your question about pronunciations, I've just always felt, and again, this probably comes down to the fact that I have a languages background. I've always felt that if I can pronounce a name 100% accurately, then I should do that. You know, why should I dumb that down? You know, if, if I can say Thomas Muller, why, why would I say Thomas Muller? You know, um, you know, if I can say Michael Balak, why wouldn't I say that? Why would I say Michael Balak? You know, because one is actually his name. The other is an approximation of his name. And I realize not everybody goes along with me on this. A lot of people think, oh, no, you should anglicize everything. You should maybe dumb it down a little bit. I just believe it's respect. And, and, and if I'm capable of saying a name, why would I reduce my ability to, to do that on air when in fact, I, I, I can actually say the name properly. I, again, I know that it's not easy for everybody to make some of these subtle sounds in languages. I know not everybody is a linguist and I'm not necessarily asking for that. Um, but I think you know, if, if we have a skill in life, I think we should be able to display that skill. You know, it'd be like saying to a, uh, say a, a central midfield player who, um, who can pass a who can who can do something with the ball that maybe his teammates can't maybe he has deficiencies in other areas but he can do a certain thing you wouldn't say well don't do that oh sorry my microphone just going the wrong direction there i'm getting too excited here don't do don't do that don't do that um because uh that will you know that will upset the other people who can't do that you know you, you wouldn't you wouldn't would you you know so that's really where I come from on that. And I am a stickler for it. I, I admit that. I, I go to the nth degree with it because it's important to me. Uh, and especially when I was in Scotland, when I was working in Scotland, I would make a point of approaching every new player to the league who came from a different country or culture. And I would introduce myself and I would always say, can you just say your name in, in your language or the way you say it? Not the anglicized version. You tell me how you say the name. And... Um, I, I had a number of occasions where these players would then approach me the next time I would turn up at their ground and say, thank you very much for, for doing that. Uh, my parents were watching the game and it was so nice. It was so nice for them to, to hear their, our name said properly. Um, because there is a tendency, I, I have to say, especially in the UK culture, there was a tendency to um, change names beyond recognition so that they're not even really close to what the the origin name is. And as I say, I, I'm not asking for everybody to, to, to do this. Uh, you know, ev everybody views the, the job of commentary in, in his or her own way. Uh, what I would say is that I, I, I do wish that we would adhere to the basic phonetics of a sound. I, I realize not everybody can say uh, or uh, and, and easily, you know, and, and have it roll off the tongue. But there are times when names just get changed and syllables get missed out. And um, and before you know it, the name sounds very, very different. 
and uh, you know and then those of us who actually do speak a language get accused of of being the ones who are butchering the names um <laughs> when we're going the extra mile to try to get it right so that is a small beef that i have but i mean as i say i can't control anyone else and, and i take the view very firmly all i can do is control myself and set my own standards and if somebody wants to take issue with that then you know let them do it yeah, I mean, so, you're talking about a, a, a UK culture that struggled with the uh, Jose versus Jose Mourinho yep. for, for nearly 20 years. So asking them to put extra effort into other names might be tough. Just before Frank asks his question, though, I'd be interested to know, what has there been one name that you've really struggled with or found difficult? Or is there a particular sort of nationality or language where you find it very hard to, to kind of get used to those pronunciations? Um, I'm trying to think. Some of the... Um... I'm trying to think of, of an example of one that, that, that does need... I mean, there are some names that need a little bit of thought more than others. Um, and I'm trying to think of one off the top of my head. Uh, I know the one that... I, I never had a problem with this one, but I know the one years ago that used to really trouble uh, British commentators was Olarticochea. Olarticochea. I never had a problem because in Scotland, we make that R sound. And uh, so I, I find it's often with people in the UK, English commentators, especially it's the R sound because they don't really make the R too well. Uh, so the R is like an R rather than an R, you know? So, um, but I'm trying to think of one. Um, I know I've put you on the spot there. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I can't think of one off the top of my head that has made me, but there have been, there have been some obviously, but then what you do is then you, then you just take your time and you um, you study. I, I wish I could. I really do wish I could come up with one off the top of my head, but um, but I can't. Sorry. <laughs> no, no, it's okay. I know I put you on the spot. So. so, so kind of going along with that part of being able to pronounce every name correctly, I assume there has to be a lot of preparation in knowing everyone that's going to be on the pitch, especially when you're freelancing and you're going maybe not even from one team to another within a league, but you're going from completely one league to another league, you know, where you have 20 teams plus in each league. How difficult is that aspect to remember everyone's name and remember everyone who's on the pitch so that you don't like, are you constantly looking down and confirming that that's the person you, that you're seeing on the pitch? Or do you have like a cheat sheet the day before you're going through all the names to make sure you don't forget when it becomes match day? How, how do you prepare for, for being able to know everyone that's going to be out there? I think the preparation is something that we all do in our own way. And what you've just outlined is part of the preparation. You know, we could look at notes which have factual pieces of information, data, but preparation is also identification. In fact, it's the most basic aspect of preparation. And that's always the first question I ask myself before I tackle a game is can i can i identify them you know first of all can i do i recognize them all you know without numbers would i recognize them if they were just walking around on the pitch and to be honest i do that i test myself always when the players begin to walk out um even before they're actually in warm-up mode when they're just wearing their their normal street clothes so to speak uh, i always as the camera sort of bounces from player to player i just make sure i know who they all are and if there's one that I'm doubtful about, then I'll double check at that point, you know, because sometimes you have a couple of players who maybe look a little bit similar, similar haircuts, things like that. Um, 
but the uh, the preparation is is certainly you know intense when it comes to that kind of thing and it's just something you kind of do for example as i speak to you now i'm getting ready for a bundesliga game on friday the preparation is not complete but some of it is done and it's just as you go things are being um implanted in your your memory bank you know and, and that's how you you do it obviously with teams that you cover a lot it's fairly easy i i happen to do bayern quite a lot so i don't really need you know much of a sort of a refresher when it comes to bayern because i, I see them all the time and and i know all their players and i know what numbers they wear and um I'm doing Hertha, who I haven't done for a little while, so that will take a little bit more preparation. But I, I watch them often enough, so it's not a huge problem. If it's two teams who you don't see a lot, then you need to do a bit of extra on that and and keep. And I, I'm always testing myself. I always just randomly will um, pull up a player on on Google and and images of that player, and and you know just make sure that I have in my head, right, okay, what are his features? Or, you know, you prepare yourself for uh, maybe two different looks that that player has. Maybe he changed his hair, you know, two months ago, and, and maybe he's going to change it again. You know, what, all these little things go through your mind. But then the other thing that I do on match days, and I know other commentators do this, maybe not every commentator, but I always, when the players are actually in warm-up mode, I then go through them all again, and I look at the boot colors that they're wearing so that, um, you know, if there are two players who do look alike and I know, okay, he's yellow today, he is white today in terms of his boot colors, then I'll make a note of that. And that can actually be very handy because remember, we have to make a quick call a lot of the time, say at a set piece, you know, the, the commentator's worst nightmare is a set piece goal in the first few seconds of a game when there's no real rhythm. And maybe it's a you know crowd of five different players and you kind of, you see one head go up and you think he got a touch on it, but you maybe don't see the number, but maybe you saw the boot color, you know, that, that is sometimes our, our way of, um, of differentiating. So all these kind of different techniques, but um but yeah, knowing what they look like, um, being able to identify, same with you know pronunciations, as we mentioned, having that all in your head so that when the game comes around, you're not really looking at the sheet. As I say, that that's there for reference. And if I ever need to, to go there in an emergency, I can. But generally, I, I look at my sheets um, right before the game, halftime, and, and not much else um, uh, because you know hopefully it's all, it's all in the head, hopefully. <laughs> and I guess some of the challenge too, and this is a touch a little bit about maybe how you've adapted to the to sort of commentating during the pandemic. How much harder is that when you are watching on a screen versus being there in sort of in stadium and being able to see more of the pitch and, and get a better sense of sort of where different players are? How much more how much more challenging is it to commentate from just watching a feed? And then in the current circumstances, are you in a studio? Or are you doing it from home? And then the feed you get, is it just the same? sort of one feed that everyone is seeing on their home or are you getting sort of additional sort of shots that a producer is providing for you? Um, there are a few layers to that question. So I'll answer that one as best I can. Um, you'd obviously prefer to be at the stadium. You know, I think you, you can always do a better job from a stadium than you can off tube. But I would say that I've been quite lucky because large slices of my career have involved games off tube. And there are some commentators who haven't worked off tube very much at all. And I think if you have worked off tube, it actually does help you as a commentator. It gives you a kind of a sixth sense as to what might be happening off the ball. It forces you to, to really, um, you know, 
zone in on, on techniques that I mentioned earlier, like book colors, like other ways of identifying because you just have this one view for the most part. Um, what I would say though, is there are times when I've done a game uh, off the monitor and I felt that maybe I was actually better positioned to commentate on it than had I been at the stadium. And I say that because sometimes when, you, when you're in a stadium or a particular stadium, the view is terrible. Sometimes you are, you know, I think about the Maracanã in Brazil and Rio uh, 2014 World Cup. That was a horrendous view. And, uh, you know, and when I say a horrendous view, it was miles from the pitch and it was really high up. And you felt as though you were, you know, two, three miles away from the action. So when you're in that situation, okay, you can see the, the, you can see the wide and the high picture in front of you, but you, you struggle to identify players, you know, and, and even the book colors in that kind of situation from that far away, you know, gold might look a little bit like red, you know, it's, it's not as easy to, to pick that out. And so that can be problematic. Whereas if you're actually just watching and just focused on the one picture, then it is easy, easier to, to pick out players. So that's where it can get a little bit complicated. But broadly speaking, you would rather be uh, at the venue than commentating from a TV monitor. Now, um, in terms of the Bundesliga, uh, normally, if we were doing a game off monitor, which does happen from time to time for the world feed, then we would have more than just the one feed. We have a second camera that we call camera one, that shows things happening off the ball. It's the wider shot, really. And that's handy because you then see, for example, you know, if the ball took a couple of deflections on the way through and both players are appealing, one saying it's a corner, the other saying it's a goal kick. Sometimes with the main feed, they'll go straight to a replay and you actually don't know if you're working off monitor what's been given. You don't know for sure. But if you have the second feed, you can see the referee is pointed over to the corner, the, the corner taker is jogging over to take it and you know it's a corner. So that can be helpful. Um, with regard to what's happening at the moment, I had a, a very frustrating period uh, the first few months of the pandemic, but I just got on with life and, and tried to make my own content uh, online. And I had other, I did have some other projects to, to work on as well. But, but I was probably in, in the most you know, frustrated position of most commentators because I uh, you know, live so far from the action of my bread and butter. You know? And so I couldn't commentate uh, on the Bundesliga for the period when it came back after the initial phase of the pandemic and similarly at the start of the season, except for when ESPN had me do the, the big live games, only a handful, but the, on, on linear TV in the US. Um, but now we have the technology and it's taken a while to develop it, but we now have a technology that means I can commentate from here, from my home. And it's amazing technology, actually. So it means that the, the, the game feed comes up on my screen. Uh, I am linked with, uh, with the main studio in Cologne in Germany. I'm linked up also with my co-commentator who could be anywhere, could be in Germany, could be somewhere else. And it's just really as normal. Uh, I produce her in my ear the way I would if I were doing a game. And it's remarkable how, how well that has gone, I, I think. So uh, that may well be the future, you know, that may well be the future for uh, a lot of commentators. And I remember in the 90s, sound engineers telling me that uh, this was going to be the future, that, you know, in a couple of years time, you won't you know, always have to go to the venue or even to a studio, you'll be able to do it all from home. And it has taken an emergency, a global emergency for this to, to actually sprout wings, if you like. But, uh, you know, necessity is the mother of invention, as they say. So that's really where that... Um, you know, that, that gives you a sort of an insight into, into how we do it. But um, 
yeah, it, it's it's going to be you know a lot longer, I think, in this mode. Um, I haven't had to be in a studio apart from when I was at uh, ESPN back in September, actually September, and then again in November for a couple of games. Other than that, I honestly have have hardly left my house except to go for a walk. Um, so um, very grateful for the fact that I can do as much as I can from home. Um, must be an interesting new challenge. And I know I don't want to kind of in the end, I suppose we don't want to keep you for too long. I would be interested to know you're at the midway point now in the Bundesliga season and maybe not the most uh, exciting season in the sense that it looks as if Bayern Munich are headed towards winning the title. And even at the bottom, it looks fairly, the, the bottom two look as if they're almost certain to go down. The European places are up for grabs. How do you feel the season has gone so far? Is there anything that's really surprised you um, on, on that front? Well, I think it, it was very exciting at the top until two or three weeks ago. You know, I think we were at the stage where we thought this could really go any which way. And Bayern were looking a bit wobbly and conceding goals. They had, what, 11 games in a row without a clean sheet. And I think other teams sense they could get at the Bayern defence. But just in the last few weeks, we've seen the other contenders, if you like, all stumble, you know, to one degree or another. I mean, Leipzig have looked like the the team most likely to, to make any sort of run, but then they fell at Mainz just a couple of match days ago. And I think probably the gap realistically is too big. And apart from Leipzig, I don't see anybody else in a position to, to make a challenge. So that is a bit disappointing. But of course, there are still stories in terms of who's going to be second, who's going to be in the Champions League. And you have challenges from the likes of Eintracht Frankfurt, who are on this amazing winning run at the moment, power uh, charged by Andre Silva, their, their main striker. You have Union who, again, I had probably down near the relegation zone this season in their second Bundesliga campaign, but with know-how, with good coaching, with a strong recruitment, they've been able to really do a lot more than most people would have expected. Wolfsburg, another team who might find themselves in the top four. Um, you never know between Gladbach and Dortmund and Leverkusen. So it's, it's very sort of jam-packed in that sector of the table, with the exception that, of course, Bayern are, are you know, opening up a, a significant gap now. Uh, at the other ends, I think it's going to be difficult for Mainz and Schalke. Um, you know, we could probably do a whole podcast on Schalke's uh, fall and, and some of the unfortunate things that have happened to that great club. But they do look destined for the, the second division, the Zweite Bundesliga. Um, there is the matter of, of who finishes 16th, goes into the relegation playoff. And, you know, I don't think you'll mind if I say I hope that's not Köln, but they got a very good win against Bielefeld, much needed one yesterday to, to lift themselves up. So um, we shall see. But I, I think the, the thing about any league is if you're invested in the league as a fan, as a commentator, there are always stories there. And the Bundesliga is no exception. No, actually, I was going to because I know we're running out of time and, and I think I, a lot of our listeners would would hate if we skipped over this part. Um, announcing in mm. FIFA, what how did that come about and, and what is it like to have to record to be in FIFA? You know, like what was that experience like? Well, it came about really by chance in the late autumn of 2017. I had just moved back to the USA I'd been, I think, as we mentioned earlier, I'd been back in the UK for almost a decade and my wife and I decided it was time to come back to, to the Boston area. 
for family reasons, for other reasons too. I realized that as a freelance, I could do a lot of what I enjoyed uh, still being based here. And um, out of the blue, I got this email from a third party saying that they were associated with a well-known video game, didn't say which one it was, and that there was an interest in this video game company talking to me. And this sort of went on for a few days. It was all a little bit kind of secretive. And then it emerged that it was indeed the big one, FIFA, EA Sports FIFA. And at that point, they just wanted to know my interest and could we sort of arrange a time to meet. Um, that took a few weeks to, to kind of get over the line. Uh, but I flew to Vancouver to, to meet them and loved the, loved the team. They were, they were great people. Could see how dedicated, how passionate they were. And as I say, they wanted me to be part of the game. And again, to give context, at that point, uh, I had, I suppose, maybe been best known around the world for my Champions League work on, on ESPN. And it so happened that the Champions League was being added to EA Sports FIFA for the upcoming edition. That would have been FIFA 19. So that was really where we started, was with the, the Champions League and the Europa League. But I had to... Um, make sure I didn't tell too many people about it at that time because it wasn't going to be announced until June of the following year. So I, we were going to start recording, but I had to, you know, even to sort of close friends when they would say, well, what are you, what are you doing in the studio this week? Oh, yeah, just a project, you know, something. It'll, it'll, I'll tell you about it in time kind of thing. And so nobody knew apart from, you know, my wife and, and a few very close uh, family people. Um, and, um, it was great fun, and it is great fun. I mean, I, I always say to people, a FIFA day for me means a smile on my face when I go in, a smile on my face when I come out. I work with a terrific production team. Um, they have tremendous attention to detail, and, and that is part of what I enjoy about it, is the kind of the exact nature of what we're doing. I mean, where it differs, I would say, from normal commentary is when you're doing live commentary, you, you're, you're reacting, you're doing it, and when it's done, it's done. Um, obviously, with a video game, you want to be more exact about everything because it all has to join up with other things that are on the game. So in other words, something that I said in, you know, recorded in, say, February 2019 has to join up seamlessly with something I might have said 18 months later or recorded. You know what I mean? So things get joined all the time in the game. And... Um, so that's part of the fun of it is is thinking through all these different joins and edits in your head and what might work and what might not work so well. Uh, but it's collaborative, you know, with the producer, with the sound man, with Andrew and, and Pete, who are, are the, the stalwarts on the, the project that way. And as I say, we work together to, to try to come up with solutions to make it as good as possible. Uh, you know, there are, there are long days doing it, but, but great fun days. And um, as I've said on a few other interviews the last few years it's been around 25 days in a studio uh, for each fifa edition that's not 25 consecutively we spread it around the year a little bit but um it's um you know it, it's great fun it's challenging but in a very good way uh, i absolutely love my association with fifa and did that, they give awesome. you a script or do you that's exactly what i was gonna ask <laughs> do they give you like clips of a match or something like how does that work um i get that I get that question a lot. It's not a script as such. It's more a concept. So um, because obviously they want it to sound like me as well. But of course, the one thing is that there are only really so many ways you can depict something, you know, without sort of stretching the, the bounds of, of credibility. 
So um, we work together and what they will say to me is, okay, the situation here is, you know, a player is um, a midfield player is threading a, a through ball through for the attacking player to run onto, you know, Derek, can you come up with, um, you know, 15 ways of how you might say that in, in normal commentary. And, and so that is the, the, the challenge that we have. Um, and as I say, it, it forces you to think in a different way about how you're conveying information. And so that's how it is, really. I mean, obviously, when it comes to scripting, yeah, I mean, names are on a script, but, you know, there are certain names that I'm simply calling in different ways, you know, so that's you know, with a lower infle- lower intensity and then with a higher one. Uh, and, and that, you know, obviously takes a certain discipline as well because they all, again, have to fit with the rest of the game so that if, if some names I do are louder than others, that's not going to not going to sound so great as well but um you know great respect for everybody who's associated with that game because there are thousands uh, around the world in different offices of, of ea sports who all have their own jobs to do in making sure that the the game is the game that people around the world play and, and love so much and and at the moment in the game you obviously you commentate along with lee dixon uh i i assume this may have been different for this version of the game in the pandemic but Typically, do you go into studio together to try and, because obviously for some of it where you're sort of playing off each other, or again, are those individual clips that they just merge? Well, uh, as far as possible, we like to be together, but it's not always possible. And obviously in a pandemic year, um, it's not been possible. So um, again, I'm very grateful for the fact that I've been able to set up my own studio here at home. Um, We found the very best room next door. It's actually normally uh, my clothes storage cupboard, but it has the the best audio. When we did the test of it uh, ahead of the sessions, um, Pete, my audio man, said, that's the room that you want to use. That's brilliant. And um, so we we have it all, you know, we have it all, um, what's the best words to use, sort of um, uh, dried out maybe would be the best um, audio expression so that the audio is as dry as possible. And um, that's where I, I do my stuff and, and leaded his, his uh, contributions separately for the, the most recent game. And um, that, again, that's you know, how people have to work in a pandemic. We're not alone in that. Uh, everybody else is going through things like that. And you know, there are some things, I think we find this in life generally, and I'm sure this will be the case whenever we get to a, a post-pandemic stage, there are things we have learned during the pandemic that maybe we should have learned before that we can put into our lives. And, and actually, you know, whether it's being more efficient, whether it's saving the planet, you know, all these things together, I think, add up to our experience as human beings. And, um, you know, the, the, that's why I'm, I'm a bit uneasy without going off topic too much. I'm a bit uneasy when people say, I just want to get back to normal. I always sort of say, well, yeah, you know, there are elements of that, of course, but I want us to get to better. You know, I want us to take our experience from the last year and probably a lot longer, to be honest, and, and put that to good use and, and you know, make the world better. Uh, what can we do to, to try to achieve that? Now, it is really interesting to have this opportunity to sort of, not everything's a negative and to, 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 yeah. to kind of see what we can learn and take forward and, and improve things. I guess one final question for me, and I'll stick a little bit on the FIFA topic. Sure. Do you ever play the game? You wouldn't want to see me playing the game. I'm, I'm, I'm not very good at it. <laughs> I'm not brilliant at all. But I do occasionally uh, try my, my luck at it. Um, I'm more likely to, in actual fact, watch other people playing it. 
And I do that. I'll sometimes spend an hour just watching other people play it. And people say, well, why do you want to do that? And I'll say, well, I want to see what good players are doing with the game. But most particularly, I want to see how the commentary works out on the game so that I can make little notes to myself. And also when it comes to our discussions with the production team, little things that I think, yeah, okay, maybe that doesn't work as well. Or maybe that works really well. Or uh, maybe I could say this a bit differently, you know, all, all things like that, all from the point of view of just trying to to improve as, as we go along. Um, but yeah, I find it it's, it's better to watch people who really know what they're doing playing the game than to try to analyze it based on my novice efforts. <laughs> Great. Yeah. So thanks so much for joining us. And I guess my last question would be, um, in the beginning of the interview, you said when football is first coming to America, the Americans were kind of trying to put their spin on it. Um, and what obviously comes to mind for me is the penalty run-ups. Uh, what did you think of those? And, and is there any chance those are coming back? <laughs> oh, 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 do you mean, do you mean the old 35 yard shootout things yeah. that we used to see in yeah. the NESL? And then yeah. Well, I have to, I have to say, I, I was not a fan of them. Um, I, <laughs> I did cover them in my early days, broadcasting MLS in the nineties. And, um, no, I was not a fan. I think, what we have to remember too is I've seen this sort of crop up people saying, Oh, this is far better than, than penalty shootouts. And I'll say, well, remember they weren't to replace penalty shootouts. They were there because people didn't like drawn matches. That was the reason why they came in. It wasn't to replace a penalty shootout. It was because the organizers of the um, American league back in the NASL days decided that draws were not a, an American concept and MLS carried this into its early years but there's a good reason why they got rid of them because, you know, imagine you're having this, you know, how many draws are there on an average week, you know, maybe a third of the games, you're having it for a third of the games every week for, for no good reason at all when a draw is a perfectly valid result. So, um, no, I, I, I was, I have to admit, was very happy when the day arrives when we didn't have to, to cover those, those shootouts anymore. Just my honest opinion. <laughs> That's funny. <laughs> we'll, have to see, we'll have to see if you change your tune if they bring them back. Uh, I, 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 I don't think they're going to bring them back, but that's just my, my view. <laughs> well, Derek, thank you very much. It's been really interesting speaking to you about your career and, and sort of everything else. So thank you for taking the time to speak with us. Eddie, Frank, thank you very much for having me. It's been most enjoyable. Great. Thank you. Thanks. Thanks.